Good morning. Welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Sumrall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise. Now, some of you were texting me last night, Pastor, you look tired. You yawned when they cut to you. Well, it had been a really long day yesterday, but I slept great last night. So look out here I come today. Sometimes just a good night's sleep is all you need. And some, forgive me for some of you, that's what you need to. Now, I said all of that to say this. Some of you, your grumpiness is beginning to manifest with the kids and with your asawa and with the relatives. And, you know, probably what you need, you're not a bad person. Probably what you need is a good night's sleep. Somehow just figure it out. How can I get a good night or a couple of good nights of sleep? The Bible promises, this is one of God's promises, that he gives sleep to his beloved. Did you hear that? You are loved of God, and he promises to give sleep to his beloved. We are not insomniacs. We are not people who are grumpy because we can't sleep. God gives sleep to his beloved. Father, I pray for all of our people right now. Some of them are working harder than they've ever worked in their lives. And Lord, they're making great progress. Others are working harder than they've ever worked in their lives, and they're just, they're just holding steady right now. Father, these have been difficult days for all of our families. Father, I ask, let there just be a spirit, spirit of peace and unity. Lord, you promised there in Romans that you would give a spirit of unity. Give a spirit of unity to every marriage. Give a spirit of unity to every family. Father, let there be a spirit of unity rest upon our nation right now so that we can pull together and walk through this thing. And Lord, for some of my brothers and sisters, it's hot. Everything is cramped. They're frustrated from being in the same room all the time. Lord, give sleep to your beloved. Just grant them the gift of sleep so that their body can heal and that their mind can heal. They don't feel fatigued all the time. Grant sleep to your beloved. Father, we come to you today for all of the frontliners. Many of them, Lord, have contracted this thing already because they're around it so much. Lord, in Luke, you healed people of the plague. I ask, as these people have given themselves so selflessly, but not just on that, Lord, out of mercy, in your mercy, Father, every doctor, every nurse that has been tested positive from this thing, let your healing flow into their body right now. Let that virus die in the name of Jesus. Let its replication end right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you for your healing. They will not suffer from this thing. It shall not put them within an intubation. But Father, instead, they shall rise up strong, just like you healed Peter's mother-in-law so that you, she could serve you. Lord, heal these doctors and heal these nurses that they can rise up and continue to serve the people that they love. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. All right, stand with me, please. Stand with me and let's worship. Remember, worship is not entertainment. It's not being a spectator. It's not listening to pretty music. It's you singing with us and expressing 
your heart to God.
in this fifth week, and really we've got 14 more days to go, all right? This week and next week will in some ways be the easiest week of this lockdown because we've settled into a routine now. We've figured out how to do this. We're figuring out how to put food on the table. We're, we're making it. But in other ways, it's the hardest week. As we get into the last week of this thing at the end of the month, hope is going to lift us all. Now, this is why you don't want to be giving hope to the kids too early because we've still got a couple of weeks to go. But the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. So you don't want to keep making promises to the kids. Just say, listen, it's going to be a few weeks yet. It's going to be a few weeks yet. But in that last week, hope is going to come within us and hope won't be deferred anymore. Hope will be an eager anticipation. So this week, I'm really working with you on holding on, endurance, encouragement the spirit of unity in the evening services. Next week, Lord willing, I'll be working with you on, all right, let's reopen our lives. But one of the things I want to mention to you right now is, in these last weeks, just about everything has been stripped away. I mean, you know, we're not spending any money except on food. Most of our life has been stripped away. This is a good time to think about what's really important. Like for me and my family, Monday lunch is important. That's our day off. That's our, that's our Sabbath day. The gathering the family together, especially now that Shaw's married, sitting in a restaurant, eating some good food, laughing and talking together, or coming over to one of our houses and having some food and laughing and talking together. This is important. So begin to make a list as we reset our lives, begin to make a list of what's really important. What do I really want to start doing again? And you know what? What are the things that are just really good that they've just fallen off of my life? What are the things that are just really good that had become an expensive habit, had become a, an unnecessary, time-consuming habit that's really not necessary? So begin to make a list as you Call it the reset list. As you begin to hit the reset button on life, what's really important to you? What's, what's really a priority? And begin to make a new schedule based on that. And I ask you to start working on that this week because we'll really spend time on it next week. Psalms chapter 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He'll deliver us from this. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, 
I will deliver him. Folks, I will always smile at that verse. Didn't say because you have the greatest faith. Didn't say because you've been a Christian for 75 years. Because he holds fast to be in love. You and I can do that. We, we can hold on to God in love. Every baby Christian can do that. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Faithful is he who has promised, as Paul says in Hebrews. Faithful is he who has promised. These are his promises, not our promises. Now, some of you, you've been in financial trouble during this time. And he has delivered you. He has been with you in trouble. He's given you ideas. He's shown you things to do. And so I've asked you to please share some testimonies with all of us about how God has been helping you. So here's another one of those testimonies. I just, we get him in and then I send him to Jong and he sees what will fit in what show on what day. And we get all this out together. So Brother Jong, what do you have for us today? My name is Alicia Valdez from North Campus. Uh, narito po ako ngayon upang mag-testify kung gaano po kabuti ang Panginoon sa buhay ng pamilya ko po. Dati po, okay naman po ang siantak po ng sales namin uh, during, uh, nung hindi pa po nag-lockdown. Then, eto na po nangyari ang lockdown. Siyempre po, nag-worried kami kasi nga po, maapektuhan nga po ang sales namin. Pero nagulat po kami. Uh, God surprised us dahil po yung aming sales ay nadagdagan pa po ng 50% God is so really good kaya po nagpapasalamat kami kay God dahil sa oras ng kagipitan kahit crisis po andong pa rin po siya, hindi niya po tayo iniiwan, thank God po uh, uh, God bless po sa ating lahat, ingat po tayo ingat po tayong lahat a 50% increase in her sales that's God. Only God can do things like this. And what God has done for her, God will do for you. So many beautiful testimonies. I shared one last night of a family that started selling chicken and fish outside of their house on the front steps. And now they not only have enough money to eat, but they're paying off the credit card that had got run up because of her, her pregnancy and, and the, the fact that she had to have a uh, a special kind of a surgery with her pregnancy and the baby needed some extra care afterwards, they're paying off their credit card debt. God has a way, and he makes a way where there is no way. But again, like I keep telling you every morning, God will not bless the sitting on our butt. He will bless the work of our hands. Let God give you an idea and then bless the work of your hands. All right, today our passage is from Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 28, or Acts 19, rather, beginning with verse 28. This is two Sundays ago in time. This was the first Palm Sunday. And when he had said these things, after he'd finished this teaching on the ten minas we talked about yesterday, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and there, upon entering it, you will find a cold tide, which no one has ever sat. Now first, let me begin to show you a map of this 
Sometimes people say, why is it that you like to go to Israel? Because these are things that you understand. Now, Bethphage is there before you, and you see Bethany to the far right, and then Bethphage, and then you come down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and Jesus will come to the Eastern Gate. This was the journey, and really, the reason I put the map up there, this is the journey that Jesus made every morning and every evening. He spent every night in Bethany because it was a safe place, and people loved him there, and they wanted to kill him in the temple. So every night he did this long walk back, and you can't even imagine walking up the Mount of Olives. And then every morning he came back past the Garden of Gethsemane, went through the Kidron Valley, and came through the Eastern Gate, Messiah's Gate, that we'll see in just a few minutes. All right, now notice, he said, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever yet sat. <laughs> now this is to fulfill prophecy. But also, I want you to understand that it's okay for you to have new things. This was a new donkey for Jesus. On the day that he entered Jerusalem, as the Messiah, as the suffering Messiah, he entered in on a colt that no one had ever ridden on. Now, I bring this up because, you know, I know what we've all lived through over the last 40 years. We've come out of poverty. And for the most part, you know, for all those years, we just made do. You know, what people don't understand is, you know, Sister Bev and I also, we bought secondhand shoes in stores and we bought secondhand things and eBay was wonderful. And, you know, eBay was around before some of the other Ukai Ukai stores were around. But we learned how to make do. But there comes a point in time when you realize God has something for you that's new also. And some of you have been so discouraged in this time. Jesus sat on a new colt that had never been ridden. God has a new house for you. God has some new shoes for you, not just from the ukai ukai. God has some new clothes for you, not just from the ukai ukai. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, the Lord has need of it. There are things that God wants to use that he has entrusted to us. And remember, Jesus is not just fully human, he's also fully God. And because he's God, the earth and the fullness thereof, everything belongs to him. This colt was merely a stewardship that had been given to this family. And he said, the Lord has need of it. It belongs to him. He's let you be the steward of it. The Lord has need of it. Now, uh, straight talk. Sometimes the Lord has need of your car because he wants you to bring people to his house. Sometimes the Lord has need of your house because he wants to open a go group there. Sometimes the Lord has need of your motorcycle because he wants you to deliver food to a senior who can't get out of the house. There are assets that God has given to us, and he looks at us and says, I have need of that. What you and I have to learn to do in life is that everything we have belongs to him. And if you will learn to live like that, God will so bless you and prosper you. But you have to learn that every single thing you have belongs to him. 
And if he has need of it, it's not an issue because it's his. He just asks you to take care of it for a while. (laughs) Meditate on that one for a while today. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks in the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way, down the Mount of Olives. Now, let me begin to show you what we're talking about here with the Mount of Olives and going down the Mount of Olives. This is, show you some video here. This is on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Temple Mount. Now we're starting to go down the Mount of Olives. And as you can see, it's um, a long way down. And this is the same road that Jesus would have walked upon. The roads, it's the first thing they teach you in archaeology, the roads don't change. So here we are walking down the Mount of Olives. Now imagine walking back up it. Now we're going into the Church of Tears. I'll let you look around at this for just a minute. This is where Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. This was his view as he wept, as he saw Jerusalem. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, saying the mighty works of God that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, these very stones would cry out. Now, one of those things you learn when you come with us to Israel is when he says the stones will cry out, you're not talking about a choir. You're talking about a multitude of choirs. You see, in most places, like in Manila, if you said the stones would cry out, well, there's a few stones laying around. In Jerusalem, everywhere you look, there's stones piled everywhere. It's just, it's a rocky area. It's not a green, fertile, beautiful area like the Philippines. It's it's a rocky area, much more so than, than Baguio. Baguio is still fertile and green. In Jerusalem, everywhere you go is stones. You, you see that when you go by uh, cemeteries, people do not lay flowers on the, as memorials like we would do here in the Philippines, they take a stone and put a stone on top of the, of the area where the body is left. So, and when I first saw that, I thought, how disrespectful. No, that's a sign of respect. There are stones everywhere. People put a stone on top. So he said, these stones will cry out. And as he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now remember how we showed you the city just a minute ago. The first thing there in the foreground would be the Kidron Valley and then Temple Mount, which is, is absolutely huge. That whole area where you see the trees up there, that's Temple Mount. The green area in between now, this is the Kidron Valley. So Jesus would have gone down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and then through that eastern gate that you see right there in the center of the picture. But now as he stands here coming down the Mount of Olives, he sees the old walled city. Now, a lot of the skyscrapers you see and things in the distance, that's, that wasn't there that day. The city was much smaller. The old walled city area. And he wept over the city. Everybody else was rejoicing, but Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
But he said, now it's hidden to you, hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When you come with us to Israel, one of the things that we will do is go through an underground tunnel, about 100 feet below ground, which would have been the level at the time of Jesus. You'll walk on the stone that Jesus walked on, coming from the old city of David up to Temple Mount. And as you come up the staircase at the other end, back up to the modern level, one of the things you will see are these giant stones that just look like they've been thrown down from the top of the Temple Mount. And they were. The Romans in 70 AD fulfilled this prophecy of Jesus. Not one stone was left upon another. And the Jews have left those stones laying just like they were since 70 AD. They've excavated the dirt around them so that people can see them. This was a time in which not one stone was left upon another, especially on Temple Mount. They not only destroyed the temple, they destroyed Solomon's portico, they destroyed the walls around it, they absolutely leveled it all, pushed all the stones off the side of Temple Mount, and they fell to the ground far below. Not one stone was left upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm going to say something strong here. In my short life, one of the things I have noticed is when a society rejects revival, it may take a few years, but when society rejects revival, judgment does come. Now, God in his mercy may delay it like it's about 30 plus years from the time Jesus dies until 70 AD. In his mercy, God delayed it. But judgment does come. When a society rejects the time of its visitation, when God manifests himself among us in a beautiful way, and churches are so busy doing their their entertainment and their influencers and their multi-level networking. And I'm sorry. We're so busy just pretending Christianity that when God visits us, when God walks among us, and that's what revival is, I'm sorry. At some point in that generation, there will be a visitation of judgment. And he entered the temple. Now, he entered it through the eastern gate. That gate today is blocked. But the Jong, if you can show us that picture one more time. That gate has been blocked. They don't want anybody to come in through that gate. The, the, uh, the Muslim people have put a cemetery. You notice a cemetery has been laid out all along that wall, blocking it because no rabbi would enter and walk through a cemetery like that. They've completely barricaded it shut because that is called Messiah's Gate. And everyone knows that that is the gate that Messiah will come through, the golden gate, the eastern gate. Now, that's the gate that Jesus entered then and went there to Temple Mount. And forgive me, when Jesus comes again in the second coming, he will split the Mount of Olive in two. A river of living water will flow out of it, wash all those gravestones away, all through the Kidron Valley. Hang a left at Potter's Field, wash away Potter's Field that is the leftover of Judas. Go down to the Dead Sea, make it fresh and live again. 
reopen that ancient riverbed all the way down to the great sea. Fish will be swimming there. Fish will grow there. They'll cast their nets. The trees that will grow, that will, whose leaves will bring the healing of the nation, will be all along it. It's going to be a beautiful day. But after he splits the Mount of Olive and that river of living water flows, the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to walk back through the Kidron Valley again. And he's going to walk through that eastern gate. And he's going to walk back on the Temple Mount and reclaim the house of God. See, that is God's house. And once again, there will be a temple there where sacrifices will be offered and King David will lead us in worship all during the millennium. It's, it's going to be a very beautiful time. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, we know that this is, when you put it with the other synoptic gospels, the first day he walked in, looked around, then Monday he came back and cleansed the temple. So this is now Monday. As he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus took very strong action, but he also explained to people why he took that strong action. Now, now this is one of the things we have to do as leaders. There are times as leaders we have to take very strong action. And forgive me, nobody likes us for it. <laughs> One day, some of you young leaders are going to understand why I say it's not the job of a pastor to be popular, it's the job to be pastor. Sometimes as leaders, you have to take strong action. But now when you take strong action and you're doing very unpopular things, because remember, this was all presented as convenience. <laughs> this was presented as convenient Judaism. You can get your money changed here for the temple tax. You can buy your sacrifices here. But what they didn't tell everybody is the hugely inflated prices. <laughs> hugely. It was all a corruption system presented as convenience. Let me say that again. It was a corruption system marketed as a convenience. So he threw all these people out. saying, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. This isn't about convenience. This is about exploitation of my people. But notice he did teach them why he did what he did. Never take strong action and think that you have no need to explain yourself. Even Jesus had the need to explain himself for his strong action. And he explained himself from the scriptures. Verse 45, or verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Now, every single day during Holy Week, Jesus was busy. He came down from Bethany, past the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, past the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Kidron Valley, up through the Eastern Gate. And every day he went into the Temple Mount, which is huge. And another translation tells us, or another version of the Gospels here tells us that the whole city came out to hear him. Now, Temple Mount is huge. You could fit well over 100,000 people up there. That would have been about the population of Jerusalem during the feast time. The whole city, and the Bible was not speaking in hyperbole or exaggeration. The whole city came out to hear him. So he was teaching daily in the temple. Other gospels put in the fact that he was also healing the sick and casting out demons. So this was a huge revival movement. But he had to clean the place first. Say, why? Remember, he's the Passover lamb. This time of teaching in the temple, because he spent very little time in Jerusalem, this time of teaching in the temple 
was him as the Passover lamb being inspected for the proper number of days. The Passover lamb was to be stuck out on a stake in front of a family's house so that everyone could see it was a lamb without blemish. Jesus goes into the Temple Mount, spends all day, every day, teaching and healing the sick and casting out demons. But first, he had shown the entire city, I'm not part of this corruption system. He cleansed the temple, saying, I'm not part of this. So they could all see his perfection and the contrast of him versus the other leaders at that time. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. <laughs> he messed up their income. He stopped their corruption. But they did not find anything they could do. They, they, were, they were helpless to stop Jesus. Why? For all the people were hanging on his words. Now, people often tell me, Pastor Sumrall, what protects the work of God? The people's love for the word of God. Ha <laughs> ha! What protects the work of God? The people's love for the word of God. That we hang on to the words of God. That we literally hang on. We're, we're hanging on to every word. We're so hungry for the word of God. When Christianity becomes entertainment-oriented, and it's all about smoke machines and fancy singers and fancy this and fancy that, and the Word of God is relegated to, well, 10 or 12 minutes of nice, sloganized presentation that has been well choreographed and, and, and you know, gone through all of the people who can check it and the focus groups to make sure that nothing's offensive and sanitized properly. That's when Christianity is destroyed. But these people literally hung on his words. And because they hung on his words, the work of God could not be destroyed by the greatest haters of the time because they hung on the word of God. Do you want to make sure of Jesus tarries that Christianity is never destroyed in our beloved nation? That there never rises up a time in which like in other places where Bible studies are not allowed to be held. You know, there are many places in the United States where it's illegal to have a Bible study in your own home. You can have a wife-swapping party. You, you can have a, a transvestite party. You, you can have, forgive me, sit around and smoke marijuana and do cocaine, and that's legal. But you can't have a Bible study. I never want to see that in our beloved nation. How do we stop it, Pastor? Hang on to the words of God. Let's be a people that love the word of God. When you love the word of God, when as a nation we hang on to the words of God, Christianity can never be destroyed in our nation. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship. A good passage to skip over. But I'm going to show you that sometimes when you skip over some of these passages, there's some of the most beautiful principles that you miss. Chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, now these are the people that have been set aside to serve God, came to Eleazar the priest, that was the high priest at the time, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them, at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. 
So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. So God said, now I've blessed you. Now, there are things that I've said belong to the people who serve me, who take care of you spiritually. The lot came out from the clans of the Kohalites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, and from the tribe of Dan, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Natali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan, 13 cities. The Merites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. Their cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites. So the Lord had commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Kohanites who belonged to the tribe of Laren, since the lot tribe of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kiriath Abra, Abra being the father of Anak, that is in Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and his villages have been given to Caleb, son of Tehuna, as his possession. Remember, he's one of the two spies. He received something special for his faithfulness and his waiting for 40 years to get it. And to the descendants of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer. Now, this is something I want you to begin to notice. The cities of refuge were given to the Levites, to the spiritual leaders of the land. This is the place where people who had killed somebody by accident, they dropped a block on their head or there's, you know, something had happened by accident. It was not intentional. They could flee to these places. And these cities of refuge are actually given to the Levites to manage. And you'll see this again and again. And to the descendants of Aaron the priest that gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer and with its pasture lands, Libna with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, Eshtemoi with its pasture lands, Holon with its pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, In with its pasture lands, Judah with its pasture lands, Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands, nine cities out of these two tribes, and then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands, four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were all in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites belonging to the Kohathite clans of the Levites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. They were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer with its pasture land, Kibzam with its pasture lands, Beth Horon with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Dan, Eltak with its pasture lands, Gibthon with its pasture lands, Ajalon with his pasture lands, Gathrimon with his pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with his pasture lands, and Gathrimon with his pasture lands, two cities. And the cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all with their pasture lands. Now, if I had a map up here and you could begin to see where all this is segregated, it would be much, much more interesting to you, but just bear with us as we read. 
And to the Gershonites, one of the clans of the Levites, were given out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Golan in Bashan with his pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, and Beshterah with his pasture lands, two cities. And out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with his pasture lands, Deberoth with his pasture lands, Jarmuth with his pasture lands, and Ganan with his pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal and his pasture lands, Abdon with his pasture lands, Hilkath with his pasture lands, Rob with his pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Batali, say, oh, pastor, we've still, we still got a ways to go before we get into some fun stuff here. Abjan with his pasture lands, Hilkah with his pasture lands, and Rob with his pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Metali, Kadesh in Galilee, with his pasture lands. So it was the tribe of Natali's area around Galilee. The city of refuge for the manslayer, Hamot Or with his pasture land, and Kartan with his pasture lands, three cities. And the cities of several clans of the Gershonites were all in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. And to the rest of the Levites, the Merai clans were given out of the tribe of Zebulun, Jokniam and his pasture lands, Karta with his pasture lands, Dibna with his pasture lands, Nahala with his pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Reuben, Bezer with his pasture lands, Jahaz with his pasture lands, Kedemoth with his pasture lands, Mehoth with his pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth in Gilead with his pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer. Now notice again and again, the cities of refuge were given to the Levites to manage. Mahaniam with his pasture lands, Heshbon with his pasture lands, Jazer with his pasture lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of several Merai clans, that is the remainder of the clan of the Levites, those were allotted to them were in all 12 cities. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. Those cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Now, I love that. God brings you into the promise, and then God gives you rest. Some of you, God's bringing you into that new business, and he gives you rest. He brings you into your new house and lot, and he gives you rest. It's not a struggle for the rest of your life. He gives you rest. Now, sometimes you and I need to get a hold of this. It's not a struggle for the rest of your life. He gives you rest. <laughs> I don't like that. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now that's one of those verses that you should put a wow next to in your Bible. Because that's God. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now see, if you just blew through that, I'm not going to read these chapters, they're boring. You would miss that incredible truth. You wouldn't just miss the truth about, you know, the cities of refuge being given to the Levites to manage. You, you'd miss this truth. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. They all came to pass. So in your Bible, write a wow next to that. And that's what God wants for your life. God is not, well, 
God does not want one of his promises for your life to fail. He wants every promise he has made for your life to come to pass. Chapter 22, verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge the Lord of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and cling to them and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, you, you sometimes wonder, why did the religious leader in Jesus' day say that this is the greatest commandment? And it's come out again and again in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. See, you and I, we, we look at, at the, the law of Moses in such a different way than they did. Such a different way. We, we've been convinced to believe that the law of Moses was just a bunch of rules and regulations and that there was no relationship at all with God. That it was just obey this, obey this, obey this. And we, our minds have been preconditioned to think that. When in actuality, God has never changed. For God, it has always been about relationship. You shall love the Lord your God. <laughs> And walk in his ways, not just walk in his commandments, walk in his ways. Walk in the same attitudes and motivating desires that God has. Oh, this is, this is, just, this is just beautiful. See, when you begin to understand that, you see that Jesus fulfilled the law. That he didn't discard the law. He didn't abolish the law. He, he fulfilled the law. And you can understand when Jesus said, anybody who breaks the commandments of Moses and teaches others too will be called least in the kingdom of God. And whoever obeys them and teaches others too shall be called great in the kingdom of God. You look at that verse and go, how could you say that, Jesus? Because Jesus understood the law of Moses. It wasn't just a bunch of rules and regulations. It was a love relationship. So Joshua says, only be careful to obey the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, his ways, his attitudes, his motivating desires, why he does what he does. Moses knew the ways of God. Israel knew the acts of God. God didn't just say, walk in my acts. He said, walk in my ways. Oh, it's beautiful. And to keep his commandments and to cling to them and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. In other words, all the spoils that they had taken during this war, where they had taken the spoils of battle. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. In other words, there were guys that had to stay home to take care of the family businesses, take care of the families, guard the cities. Some of you went to war and you made a lot of money, 
Now share with your brothers who stayed home. And this was kind of a, a cultural law that even David followed. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, on which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Verse 10. And when they came into the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day? in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which you have not yet cleansed yourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Now notice, the promised land is called the Lord's land. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as a rebel by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity? Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or in a breach of faith against the Lord, did not spare us, do not spare us today, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No. But we did it in f from fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you and the people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might take, make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do to perform the service of our Lord in the presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, 
you have no portion of the Lord. We thought if we should say this to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made not for burnt offerings, nor for a sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for a burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Now let me just stop there. God had never planned for these two and a half tribes to stay on the other side of the Jordan. But they wanted it. So there's a principle here. There are times that we choose something outside of the promise of God. And when we choose something outside of the promise of God, there are times that God, in his mercy and grace, lets us have what we want that's outside of his promise. Now, forgive me, I don't want to do that. Because I look at some of these Old Testament stories, as Paul says, these are examples written unto you. But when you you do things that are outside of God's revealed will, and God says, okay, I will allow that. So sometimes God gives you what you want when it's not his promise. But there are consequences. There are consequences that happen in the future. And these people recognize, you know what? There's this river Jordan between us. We're not technically in the promised land. And there's a good chance that later on, future generations will say that we're not part of this because we never entered in. Even though we helped them conquer the land, they'll say that we're not part of this because we never entered in. We're on the other side of the Jordan. So in their fear, they did something that brought conflict. Let me say that again. In their fear of the future, not in their fear of reality, in their fear of a potential future, they did something that brought conflict. Now, learn the principles here real quick. Number one, when you ask for something outside of the promise of God, sometimes God will give it to you. It's not what he wanted for you, but he'll let you have it. Now, when you do that, there are going to be consequences in the future. The separation of their families while they had to go and help Israel conquer the land. That was a consequence they had to be willing to accept. But now there are consequences in the future that maybe Israel won't accept us. Maybe the other tribes one day will look at us and say, we're not part of them. So they take an action out of fear, and that brought conflict. Some tremendous truth here, brothers and sisters, that you need to spend some time meditating on today. Verse 30, when Panias the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the head of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Panias, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Panias, the son of Eliezer, the priest, the chief priest, and the chiefs, rather, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel.